Good morning, everybody doing okay? You guys good? Good, good, hey, uh, three things we gotta cover real quick before we get into the lesson. First, uh, Savut did a great job last weekend, if you weren't here. We like Savut, we're pro-Savut around here. He did a great job. Uh, second thing, if you have not been back to the back to visit the Compassion International um, representatives, please go back there and do that. We have been, uh, we, we used to go through another organization, but at this church we've been supporting children in other countries for a really, really long time. I personally do this, and um, it, it's really not that much of a burden at all. I remember years ago I felt really convicted. I don't drink coffee anymore, but when I used to go drink coffee every single uh, uh, day after I'd eat lunch, I'd go by the Starbucks on Old Fort, and I realized that if I went from a venti to a grande, the difference in that price would cover a child being sponsored for a month. So I can sacrifice, you know, things like this, uh, just drinking, you know, a, a $4 coffee instead of a $5 coffee. I can sacrifice that every day and, and make sure that a child has health care and um, gets to hear the gospel and is fed and gets educated. So please, after service, go back there and say, Hi to them. It also is really convenient that we're talking about faith and works today. So there'll be plenty of conviction from the Bible to go around, and <laughs> that'll be good. Okay, third thing and last thing. So uh, Savut taught last weekend, A, because I, I like hearing him teach, and B, um, I was gonna be out of town all this, this previous week. I was gone, so I, I wanted to put the burden of putting a lesson together on Savut so I didn't have to. And um, he actually went with me, me, Savut, Mike, and Phil, went up to the Northeast because we work with churches and we worked with a church in Brooklyn in Staten Island and Albany. Uh, we were supposed to meet a church in Burlington. Um, that's another story for another day. And then uh, we met uh, a, a church, uh, a guy from a church in Beverly, Massachusetts. And if you're not familiar with that area, we have sponsored a church in Salem for many, many years. It closed down and there is not one Protestant church in Salem, Massachusetts right now. And that's my favorite city in the United States. I absolutely love Salem, Mass. So um, I met with a guy in Beverly, which is a town right above Salem, and got to know him. Really, really great guy. Uh, I think we'll start supporting um, his church, and um, that'll be good. But if you've never been to Salem, this is a story I was gonna tell you. If you've never been to Salem, Salem is a beautiful place. It's a very, very expensive place to live. Um, houses there are about $400 a square foot, about twice what they are here. Very, very expensive. So. 1,000 square foot condo will be four or $500,000, very, very expensive. And um, people are really, really friendly there. There's a lot of dogs, everyone has dogs. Everyone just walks around with dogs. Beautiful area, people are very kind, and it's also very spiritually dark. Very, very, very dark. Without exaggeration, about half the people you meet, um, they'll tell you they're a witch, and they're not joking. Like, like, there's stores where you can buy all kinds of stuff to do legitimate witchcraft, and, and um, it's just a very dark, place spiritually. I, I love that place. I love the people there, but very dark, very confused. And so we stayed a couple of days in Salem and, um, you know, showed the guys around. And every morning we would go and get breakfast. And we stayed at a really, really neat hotel there. And um, every morning we'd go down and get breakfast. And we had the same waitress every morning. Awesome woman. And um, just super bubbly, great personality. Because we'd come in every day, she'd like, hey, you know, she'd go, hey, my table of boyfriends, you know, and, and uh, just a really nice, nice lady. And I really liked her a lot. And the last day we were there, we're about to leave. And she goes, hey, I've been seeing you guys every day. She goes, I don't, I don't even ask you guys, what do you guys do for a living? And this woman, she, she professes to be a witch. She told us that the day one uh, that we were there that, that she professes to be a witch. And she says, what do you do? And Mike goes, well, we're all pastors. 
and she starts bawling, crying. And um, she just goes, well, can you guys make sure you pray for me sometime? I'm just going through a lot. And she starts crying and she kind of gets embarrassed and she walks away and, and so we're about to pay the bill and um, I go up to the manager of the hotel and it's like, hey, not to, not to be you know, snoopy or anything like that, but like, what, what, what's going on with this individual? Can you tell me what's going on? And well, her, her baby daddy just left and left her with her kids and she doesn't have enough money, money to pay the rent and the bills and all that stuff. And, and I'm telling you this because it's your money. Um, we, we, uh, we, left her, we left her a thousand dollar tip. So, um, <laughs> which I've learned at a restaurant you can't do. So we had to go to the ATM and we got it out in 20s. So um, I learned that because I've never done that before. But um, we went back in and, and we talked with her for a minute and, and I gave her the money. And I mean, she just broke down just a mess and uh, gave me a huge hug. And we ended up praying with her right in the middle of this hotel in Salem, Mass., and what's really, really neat is we hooked her up with the pastor from Beverly. They're already scheduled to meet with each other and start doing counseling, and she's gonna start going to church. So. That's neat stuff. That's good stuff. That's what it's all about. So anyways, cool story. So last week, Savut taught the second half of chapter one in the book of James. James was a literal younger brother of Jesus Christ, wrote this book in somewhere in probably the mid-50s AD. And the book was written to people scattered throughout the world who were Christians who were being persecuted. The second half of chapter one, what Savut talked about, is we are to not just be hearers of the word of God, which means we don't just come in here on the weekends and hear this. We don't just pick up this book and read it. It's not enough just to know this. We must do it. We must live it out. That's what he talked about last week. Now, because when this letter was originally written, there were no breaks, what we go into in chapter two is really in alignment with chapter one. And we're gonna hang out on a very, very famous and very, very important phrase from James, that faith without works is dead. It is pointless, it is meaningless, it does not do anything. To have knowledge but to not act on that knowledge does nothing. So that's what we're gonna talk about today, okay? Now, before I get started, I also wanna preface this. This lesson is not so much about this church, and I'm not trying to be arrogant, and I'm not trying to puff you up or, or let you off the hook. This is a wonderful church. You're a giving church, you're a benevolent church, you're a kind church, you're an active church. Today, um, in, in, the, in, the, in light of the American church, which is not so hot right now, we have to make sure, as we talked this morning, that even though we may be doing well right now, that our faith is producing action, you and I need to make sure that we never slide into laziness, into spiritual apathy, okay? So we have to talk about this stuff, even if we don't think it applies to our church right now, we need to talk about this stuff because we wanna make sure that we never become a lackadaisical country club, essentially. We don't wanna become that, all right? So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything is on, uh, on the notes handout. Everything will be on the screens. Everything is on the Experience Community app. Click on sermon notes. If you have a Bible, back towards the back. You have the book of James. We're gonna do the whole uh, second chapter. I think you'll enjoy it. It's a fascinating chapter. So let me pray. We'll jump into this and um, see where God takes us, okay? Let me pray. Father God, we love you. 
Lord, I thank you so much for this church. God, I'm so appreciative of this church. I'm appreciative of the people in this room, God, and the people watching maybe online. Lord, I just pray that you keep your hand on us today, God. Lord, we pray not only that you keep your hand on this church, but we pray that you keep your hand on every church in our city, our other campuses and the churches in those cities. God, we pray for the churches that we're working with up in, New, up in the New England area in the Northeast. And God, we pray for the wonderful nonprofits that we get to work with, like Compassion International, Lord. God, we just pray that you keep your hand on us as we study, and we pray that ultimately everything we do today, God, that it honors you and blesses you, Lord. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, and we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Chapter two, good stuff right here. James writes this. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that is invoked over you? So what, what James is starting off with is he's talking about partiality and that we are to not show partiality to certain people because the Bible says that God is no respecters of persons, right, of people. So James tells us that we are to not treat people differently based on their income, based on their power, or based on their fame or social prominence. Do you wanna know why we fall to favoritism? I don't know if you ever thought about it in this respect. And this is something we can all easily fall to. We fall to favor, favoritism because selfishly we want something out of the relationship with that person. We hang out with rich people, or we wanna hang out with rich people, so hopefully we can get some of those riches. We hang out with influential people, so maybe we can get some favors or some influence. We hang out with famous people so more people can know who we are. And, and so here's what, here's what James is telling us. We are not to look at people through the lens of what can I get out of them. That's not how we're to look at people. That's not the way Christians view other people, okay? And so something he says, now this is where history plays in, and this is why it's really fun to study the Bible like this. James says, if someone walks into church and they're wearing a big gold ring, don't treat them any differently. Now, it's interesting, you, some of you are probably wearing gold rings. In James' time, what, that, what, what, what would go on is they had stores where you could go in and rent gold rings. So if you're going to a party, you could go rent a bunch of gold rings, go into the party, you know, you know, conveniently rub your face or something so everyone could see all the gold rings, and they think you're very prominent, they think you're very wealthy. You weren't wealthy, it was just the appearance of wealth. Think about the culture you live in, my friends where people, we have many gold rings in our culture. Maybe not literal gold rings, we just have cars that we could never afford, but we drive to make it look like we have more. 
We live in neighborhoods, even though we're, we can't furnish the home that we live in. We, we, we buy clothes just because of name brands, so people will look at us and think that we're something. We, we do a really, really good job of trying to mask our insecurity in a nation like this. But because we put our identity in things that are insecure, we become insecure people. And we have to go to these ridiculous links to cover that up. And that's what people were doing in James' time. And so what's interesting is people would come into the church and they may look rich, but they might not actually be rich. And people were treating them differently because of it. And so verse three and four is talking about us, that we are to not reserve special privileges for people that we think will, will financially benefit the church more. When we do that, whether it's in the church or whether it's you as an individual, when we treat people like that, we are placing a value on people. We are judging people. We are putting ourselves into the position of God and judging their value. And so listen, just for a side note, if you're new here, maybe you've never heard me say this. I don't know who gives at this church. I don't want to know who gives at this church. None of our pastors at any of our four campuses know who gives at their church. The only time I ever look into if someone gives is if we're thinking about hiring them or we're thinking about making them an elder in the church. And I think that's pretty logical that we do that. If we're gonna pay them, we're gonna make sure that they contribute into the vision of this as well before they take your money as a paycheck. If they're an elder, we're gonna make sure that they contribute to the vision of this church because they're gonna be making financial decisions. That's why we do that. And so I'm gonna tell you a story real quick. Years ago, not here, but at a church I worked at before this, the, the only church I've ever gone to besides this one, one time I saw the list. I saw the list of people who gave and people who didn't. And this whole gold ring thing that James was talking about a second ago, it's pretty fascinating. I saw the list, wish I would have never saw the list, because there was a bunch of really, really rich, prominent people that came to our church that had never given to our church one time. And then there was a bunch of people that you never thought had the money to give and they gave a ton. And it was interesting, it kind of broke my heart because you, you really kind of saw where people's priorities really were, right? These people live in huge houses and drive nice cars and they have never done anything for the kingdom of God, financially speaking. And then these people who have very, very little, man, they were very, very giving, they got it. And this is the kind of people that James is talking about here in a second. So it looks like God is playing favorites. God doesn't play favorites, but it almost looks like it right here, doesn't it? He says that God chose the poor to be rich in the kingdom. Well, isn't that favoritism? No, 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 that's not what he's talking about. You gotta, you gotta go bigger than that. It's, this isn't really about money. What James is speaking of is, is God looks at anyone who values the things of his kingdom more than the things of this kingdom and God makes them rich in the faith. That doesn't mean that you can't have money. You can have plenty of money as long as the things of God are more important to you than your wealth. That's fine, you will still be rich in the kingdom of God. The problem with wealth is, and the reason why the Bible talks about wealth, wealth is not evil. Well, Corey, the, you know, money is the root of all evil. It's not what the scripture says. The love of that money is the root of all evil. Money in and of itself is not evil. It's a piece of paper that you exchange for goods and services. The problem with wealth is this though, and we see this all throughout the United States. The problem with, with us having a massive amount of wealth is it detours our dependency on God and it puts it on our things. And it's really easy for us in the United States to point at the rich when quite frankly, guys, we're all doing pretty well. 
And we've become way too comfortable in this country. And that's why it's easier to spread the gospel in third world countries because they're not dependent on their stuff. They don't have stuff. And so oftentimes with wealth, this is why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. That doesn't mean that rich men can't go to heaven. It just means it's difficult sometimes when you have all of these material things. And so James is not indicting wealthy people. I don't know if you know this, Jesus hung out with a super wealthy guy. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. In fact, if it wasn't for Joseph, there wouldn't have been a burial plot for Jesus after the crucifixion. He was a good man. He was also a wealthy and and, and powerful man. But verse seven does tell us that there were rich and powerful people who were oppressing the poor, who were blaspheming, who were taking them into court. And we will always have that, guys. There will always be rich, powerful people who oppress the poor, who use slave labor in foreign countries and treat their employees bad. And there are always going to be evil, greedy people like that. The point is not for us to hate rich people. The point is for us to look at all people through the lens of Christ, to look at all people through the lens of God, not with prejudice, not with favoritism. And that applies to money, that applies to influence, it applies to skin color, it applies to nationality, and it applies to gender. And when we look at people the way God looks at people, we become merciful people. People of mercy. Let's look at the next part. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you're a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has never shown mercy or who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a good one. So what are we to do? Very, very simple. We're to treat others the way that we would like to be treated. It's so simple, guys, so simple. We all know this. We, we just fail to do it quite often because we're, we're selfish. It's what we're naturally prone to be. So Jesus was talking one time in Matthew chapter 22. The religious leaders come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, they're gonna stump him. They say, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus says, well, it's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. That's the first, first and greatest commandment. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, there's a second one. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he even goes so far to say that's similar to the first one. James calls this the royal law. And when we fail to follow the royal law, James says we become transgressors. This is very interesting. That word transgressors means that that, that we, we fail at the very fundamental law of what it means to be a human the very fundamental law of what it means to be a moral, decent person is to treat other people the way we would like to be treated. That is, that is like the bedrock of what it means to be human. And when we fail at that, the Bible says we become transgressors. We have broken the, the fundamental moral code to treat others the way we would wanna be treated. 
Verse 10 is also provocative. Provocative is a good word, isn't it? That if we keep all of the commands of God, listen, this is important. If we keep all of the commands of God, but we do not treat others the way that we wanna be treated, we are guilty of breaking all the laws. <laughs> that should be convicting because we will come to church, we will read our Bible, we will pray, we will do all these things, and then we will treat people like garbage. And we say that we're following Jesus, but we're not following Jesus at all. And the Bible actually shows us this. In Exodus chapter 20, that's when we get the 10 commandments, right? Moses goes up, gets the 10 commandments, comes down, presents those. 60% of the 10 commandments do not deal with how we interact with God. 60% of the 10 commandments deal with how we interact with each other, 60%. Only 40% of them are how we relate to God. This is fascinating. This shows us that to not love other people is to not love God. If we say, the Bible even says this, how can we, how can we claim to love an invisible God when we can't even love visible people? How can we say we love a God that we've never seen if we can't even love our neighbor that we look at every single day? You can't. And so Jesus boiled down the 10 commandments into two simple things, right? 40, 60 split. Love God, love people. That is it, so simple. And we are also to not become judgmental people. Boy, this is where we really, really mess up the scripture, but I'm gonna break it down. It's gonna be so simple because so, I have to do that for, my, for myself. The Bible says we are to make righteous judgments. Whenever people say, oh, don't judge, you have to judge. We all have to make judgments. If you're walking in New York City and you turn down an alley and there's a guy with a ski mask and a baseball bat, you make a judgment. I'm not gonna go down this alley. This is not a good way to go. And that doesn't make you judgmental. <laughs> it makes you not an idiot, right? If you're a parent in this room, you've made about six billion judgments in your life. You're going where? <laughs> With whom? Here is the difference between making righteous judgments and being a judgmental person. To make righteous judgments means that we look at things through the lens of this word, and this is how we determine what is right and wrong, what is wise and foolish, right here, right? It's not our standard, it's God's standards. That's righteous judgment. When we start looking at situations, people, things like that, through our idea of what is right and wrong, we become judgmental. We are self-righteous, that's judgmentalism. So when we become critical or when we become judgmental, we forget that we are placing ourselves into a position to be judged by God who sees everything, right? The judgment of what is right and wrong is his, it's not ours. So we can make righteous judgments and that's okay. But when we start making judgments based on what we prefer, that is judgmentalism and we are placing ourselves into a position to be judged. So what do we do? We become merciful people because mercy triumphs over judgment. Now listen, we're to still use wisdom, but mercy should be what we strive for. We should strive to be merciful, gracious people. Why? We strive to show mercy and grace because we are recipients of ridiculous mercy and grace. This is why we show mercy and grace to others. This is why we give the benefit of the doubt. 
This is why we literally go out and feed the poor. This is why we clothe the naked. This is why we visit the prisoner. This is why we extend forgiveness even if people haven't asked for it. Do we at least offer that grace and forgiveness because mercy triumphs over judgment. And so if we show mercy as a church and as we, if we show mercy as individuals, God continues to show mercy to us because guess what? We're gonna mess up sometimes. But if we have been merciful people, God is a merciful God to us. If we have been gracious people, God is a gracious God to us and we will not ultimately face his judgment. On the other hand, and I hate to end this section on such a negative part right here. On the other hand, if we are judgmental, the Bible says judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. So if we have been judgmental and merciless, when we mess up, we will be judged and we will not be shown mercy. This is what the Bible teaches us, okay? Now, this next part's a little long. Sorry about that. I don't know why I'm apologizing. I didn't write it, but the, the next part's a little longer. <laughs> what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works. And by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works and receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is vitally important. I love what James says. He says, <laughs> Can such faith save someone? If they say they, listen to me, Southern Christians, if they just say that they believe, but there is no evidence of that belief, James says, is that really salvation? The answer is no. A verbal testimony is not adequate evidence of one being saved. I am not exaggerating. Hundreds of times over the last 13 years, I've had people come to me Hey, can you pray for my cousin? He's in jail for selling heroin. He would beat his wife. You know, he's strung out on drugs, all this kind of stuff. Can you pray for him? I'm not worried about his salvation, but can you pray for him? And I will just go, you're not worried about his salvation? We need to be worried about his salvation. Well, he accepted Jesus when he was 12. Just a side note. 
If you can find anything about the sinner's prayer in this book, would you come let me know? Because I haven't seen it yet. This idea that we can just meet someone and say, hey, repeat after me, you're good. It's not biblical. There is action that follows that. Our verbal profession must be supported by visible evidence. So talking the talk means nothing if you do not walk the walk. And if we claim to know Christ, but we do not demonstrate Christ, our claim is false. And so here is the thing. Without works, people die. When James says faith without works is dead, there is a literal death that happens when Christianity does not act on their faith. Jesus said, feed the poor. Well, if no one goes out and feed the starving, they die. And so if we walk by, I love this example that James uses. And now listen, this is a little bit different than our day and age. In James' day and age, if someone was begging for food, like this was their last resort, it's because they had a physical problem, it's because they were blind, it was because they were a widow and they had no way to work, they had to go out there and beg for food. Nowadays, I do not advise that you just give money to everyone who's asking for money on the streets. I don't advise that you do that. You will support either bad habits or you will support domestic abuse. There are wonderful organizations that offer things to helpless people and that's what we give our money to. So we have to be wise about that. But in James' time, if someone was begging, it was because they absolutely had to beg. And so James says, what good does it do to walk by someone who's starving to death and say, hey, bless you, I love you, pray for you, and then keep on walking? What good is that? They still starve to death. So faith without works is dead. So we are to act on the commands of Christ to be benevolent and loving people. Hey, here comes the guilt trip. So we can say all day long that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. We can say that we love children, but if we're not willing to give up 30, 40 bucks a month to make sure that a kid has health care and that he hears the gospel or, he, or she hears the gospel, that they, that they have food, that they have education, if we're not willing to give up some small things in our life to make sure that that happens, we're talking the talk, not sure if we're walking the walk, well, Corey, I can't afford that, you can. You can. You can stop Netflix and Hulu, and there you go. You've adopted a child, okay? And you'll live without those two things, I, I swear. I mean, keep moving on. So, if we do not act on our faith, people literally die. Not only do people literally die, if hungry people physically starve to death and die unless we act on our faith, the same is true for the starvation of the soul. To, to know what the bread of life is, Jesus, the gospel, to know what the bread of life is, but to not ingest it means we will still spiritually starve to death. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? I can know that this is a plate of food, but if I do not eat the food, I still starve to death. I can know who Jesus Christ is, but if I do not live in a relationship with him, I still spiritually starve to death to know what is right, but to not act on what is right is still wrong. And, and I know that it's, it's December and we should have you know, Rudolph and some big play going up here right now, but, but we're gonna talk Bible in church for a minute if that's okay. Something that is really, really dangerous right now in Christian culture, especially in the South, there's a lot of people who say, I know who Jesus is. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. There's a lot of people who know what food is, but they are not ingesting it and they will die. 
which spiritually speaking means this. There will be a lot of people who knew the truth but did not act on it and they will not be with us in eternity. Well, that's uncomfortable. It means we need to get to work. It means we need to take this seriously. Do you know who knows this? Every demon in hell knows this. Every demon in hell knows this. The demons in hell have knowledge of Jesus and this absolutely smashes the bad theological approach where they say, well, I know God. Great, what are you doing with that knowledge? Every demon in hell knows Jesus. They used to be roommates for God's sake. Every demon in hell knows Jesus, but they do not act on that knowledge. Therefore, they are in hell. And James goes so far to go, are we so senseless that we're not going to accept that faith without works is dead? Yet here we are in Southern American Christianity where I know it, that doesn't mean anything. Unless we act on that knowledge, that knowledge means nothing. This is what James keeps saying over and over and over again. And to know the knowledge of Jesus and not to act on the knowledge of Jesus is rebellion to Jesus. This is why Jesus separated them into sheeps and goats. You knew that you were supposed to do all this stuff, but you didn't do it. And this is not a new lesson. This goes way back in the Old Testament. You had Abraham, you had Rahab, who are historical examples, who not only had faith, they did something with their faith. I love this. I love how James uses this example. Our faith is only complete if we're willing to sacrifice everything for God like Abraham was, and if we're willing to help other people like Rahab did. Again, action is the true evidence of faith. And then where he ends, I think it's really interesting, this last line, verse 26, is a throwback to Genesis chapter two, where Adam is created and Adam is a lifeless body until God acts and breathes into him. It wasn't until an action took place that the body became alive. We're gonna talk about this a little bit more in a second. This is probably the most important thing we're gonna talk about today. That's why I'm gonna hit it again here in a minute. God demands that our faith is evident in two ways, two ways. Personal holiness, which means there are things that we do, actions we do that help us get closer to God, and also practical service which means that we do things for other people. This is how our faith is supposed to be evident. And without these two things in our life, it is absolutely ridiculous to claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. How can we claim to follow Jesus Christ if we are not following Jesus Christ? If we are not doing what the Bible tells us to do, if we are not living the way that God wants us to live, how in the world can we claim such a thing? Guys, I can claim things all day long, but if there is no evidence, I can claim that I'm 170 pounds with a six pack. It is not true. As you see, there is no evidence of these things. <laughs> and it gets worse this time of year, does it not? So I know what some of you are saying right now, right? I, 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 there, there's plenty of armchair theologians out there and they sit back and they'll go, well, obviously this guy has never read the book of Ephesians. I just taught it. Because in chapter two of Ephesians, Corey, it says that we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by our faith. I love when people quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 because I'm like, hey, have you read verse 10? It comes right after that. You are saved by grace through faith. Why? 
for good works that God prepared ahead of time for you to do. You're not saved just to sit there and be a consumer and do nothing. You are saved to go out and produce evidence of God. Why? So other people can see the evidence of God and give their lives to God. And more people go to heaven, less people go to hell, and that's a good thing. This is not complicated stuff. So listen, you are absolutely right. We are not saved by works, but we are not saved from works either. It is faith that saves you, and it is works that is evidence of that saving power. This is simple, simple stuff. Simple stuff. This is not you. Listen, I'm not trying to, again, I'm not trying to let you off the hook. You guys do a phenomenal job at this, but we just have to be careful that we never slide into that apathy. We have to be careful that we don't become another one of those big churches that doesn't really do anything. First thing we need to do is we need to make sure that we are not prejudiced people. Listen, I'm gonna tell you, it's okay to make judgments. Only God can judge me. It's not true. That's why we have judges because there are people that judge what is right and wrong, what is legal and what is not legal, what is moral and what is immoral. Ultimately, yes, God is the final judge, but he has given us parameters by which you and I can make righteous, wise judgments. But we are not to pre-judge based on appearance. We're not to show favoritism so we can gain something from other people. That's not what we're to do. So when we become critical, when we become judgmental, we forget that we are placing ourselves into a position to be judged. And the one that is going to judge us sees everything, everything, including our lack of love, including our lack of grace and mercy. And we don't wanna be in that position. We don't wanna be in that position, okay? So let's not be prejudiced people. Let's work towards being merciful people. So the easiest way to not be prejudiced the easiest way to not show favoritism is to simply treat people the way you wanna be treated. My wife uses this all the time. Um, my wife meets with a lot of people and she'll hear them out. You know, they'll get coffee or get lunch or something. She'll hear it and, you know, people may be complaining about their spouse or complaining about something. And Alicia, my wife's very black and white. My wife was a biochemist. You, you should watch my wife cook sometimes. She, when I cook, I just kind of throw everything in there my wife, like, she'll scoop out the flour and she'll go. <laughs> and I'm like, just throw it in the bowl. Just throw it in the bowl, right? But she was a chemist. She's used to like, you know, what's the viscosity of this flour? And I'm like, I don't even know what that word means. Just put it in the bowl. But <laughs> to my wife, <laughs> things are very, very black and white. And sometimes people will tell her stuff and she'll go, would you wanna be treated like that? Would you, so you're talking to your husband like this, would, what would you do if your husband talked to you like that? And that usually puts a big pause. And she'll do that to me sometimes. We'll be somewhere, Corey, is that how you'd like to be treated? No. And it really humbles you. <laughs> it's really that simple. So because God has shown great mercy to us, we are to be merciful people. We're to be gracious people. You know what? Some of you who've made a lot of dumb decisions in your life, you're gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. I pray to God that God never lets us completely forget how bad of people we used to be. You know what I'm talking about? 
Because what happens is, is you get saved by grace through faith, you, you experience the mercy of God, decades go by, and you forget how bad you used to be. Then you start looking at other people and you start talking about how bad people are. I pray that God never lets me forget how bad I was. Still far from perfect now. But to not love others, to not show grace and mercy, quite frankly, means that we don't love God. It is impossible to not love people and to say that we love God. It is impossible. So two kinds of works that we are to produce as Christians. The first one is personal holiness. We must not only believe in the truth, we must not only believe in the word of God and trust God, we must live that out. I say this to you guys all the time, but this is how we live out our faith. These are works, practical, simple things that we are to do in our life and they benefit us. Pray, you need to pray. Not just once a day, we need to pray several times a day. We need to sporadically pray and we need to intentionally find a time to pray. We need to read the word of God. My Lord, there's so much wisdom in that book. Just read a little bit. Even if you just read a couple of verses a day, read something, read the word of God, obey the word of God, move away from sin, things that God does not approve of. And when you do make a mistake, when I make a mistake, give a heartfelt repentance to God. Give a heartfelt apology. God, forgive me and help me. This is personal holiness. This is a work that we should be producing. So if I say I'm a Christian, which, which implies that I have a relationship with Jesus, but I never talk to Jesus, I have no desire to learn anything about Jesus, that's not a relationship. Prayer, reading the word, obeying the word, moving away from sin, repenting when we do make mistakes, these are works that we do that is personal holiness, brings us closer to God, it benefits us. That's number one. The second kind of work that we need to be displaying is serving other people. Our works and what we do must extend beyond ourselves and touch the world around us. Do you know a good place to start that we can all do? Just be nice to people. Treat others with kindness. Be friendly, be hospitable. Don't just be friendly and nice though. Look for an opportunity, so important. Look for an opportunity in your relationships to share the gospel. That is the most loving thing you can do. You don't have to know everything about God. You don't have to know everything about the Bible. Tell them your personal testimony. I was once a drug addict, but I've been delivered. I was once an adulterer, I've been delivered. I was once, you know, I don't know, had a horrible temper, I've been delivered. God has helped me with these things. I used to struggle with depression. God has helped me with that. Tell people your personal testimony. It is so selfish of us to know the key that sets people free and to look at people in bondage. We need to offer them that key. They may not always take it, but at least share that with them. We are called to feed the poor. We have a group of people doing that right now during this service at Journey Home. We are called to clothe the naked. We are called to visit the prisoner. There are many of you who are on our prison ministry. We're called to do that. We're to do all these things, though, this is very important, without enabling destructive behavior. We are to do these things without enabling destructive behavior. We are to help people without enabling them. That we are to, to, to help pull people up, not keep them where they are. The bottom line is we are called to serve others, personal holiness and serving others. Why? Because faith without works 
is dead. To say that I love and follow Jesus, but I do not do anything with that knowledge, the Bible says is useless. It is senseless, James says, to think that you can have faith without evidence of that faith. Let me leave you with the scripture. I'm gonna leave you with the scripture, okay? This was written about 2,800 years ago, about 800 years before the New Testament. Isaiah the prophet, God was speaking through him to his people. Now, now listen again, this is not you, but see if this reminds you of American Christianity. Look at this. The Lord said, these people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me, and human rules direct their worship. Sound familiar? It's like getting the big cross tattooed on your arm but never praying one time. It's like wearing the shirt and never speaking to anyone about the gospel. It's about talking about how love is love but you've never put apart any of your finances to go out and do something for people. It's all of this lip service. It's posting that passage on your Instagram every single day but never actually opening up your Bible. It is lip service. It is presenting a gold ring, but you're broke. It says their lips are close to me, but their hearts are far away, and human rules dictate how they worship. It is so unfortunate. The majority of churches in the United States look nothing like what the Bible tells the church to look like because it's more about our preference than it is about the preference of God. It's by our rules, right? and not by his. Listen, this is not, I don't think this is you. I, 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 this is not our church. Maybe there are some parts of this that are convicting, and, and guys, that's okay. But listen, even if we're hitting home runs at this church, works-based, right, that's what I'm saying, we need to make sure that we never slide into this. We need to every once in a while remember and say, God, is my heart as close to you as I say it is? Am I as close to you as I present myself to other people? Do I have personal holiness? Do I pray? Do I read the word of God? Do I obey it? And what am I doing for the world around me? What am I doing to bless those around me? Jesus said, I didn't make you the light so you could hide it. Jesus said in Matthew, I made you the light so you can put it on a hill and it illuminates the entire city. The church should be changing the city. And we as individuals, Guys, think about this. Let me put it in this perspective. Between our four campuses, we have about 6,000 people that come every single weekend. What if every single person at our four campuses discipled one person next year? One. You'd have 12,000 people. I don't, know what, I don't know what to do with all those people, but, <laughs> but we'd have 12,000 people. Plant new churches, send them on the mission field. Imagine that if we all just did one. Just one. We are the light. We are the salt. Just make sure that that light never gets dim. Every once in a while, it's important that you check on the health of your light. Okay? Okay. I love you guys. I'm so proud of this church. Whenever I travel, whenever I talk to other churches, and I hear of all the problems they have and the things they're going through, I sit back and I'm like, man, I have a good church. I have such a good church. I love you guys very much. Let me pray for you, okay? And then here's the thing. If you are in this room and you are not a Christian, but you're on a journey, you're looking, 
up here on my right, your left, Jonathan, right over here, walking up with the hat on. If you have any questions for Jonathan, he'd love to talk with you. If you have any prayer requests, anything you need prayer for, there'll be men and women on both sides of the stage if you need prayer for anything. And then the last thing is this, and I wanna encourage you and maybe chastise you just a little bit. There is communion all the way around this room where we see a lamp on a table and then there's some on these posts in the middle. That is bread and wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That even while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us on the cross. Everyone is welcome to take that to remember what Jesus did if you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Now listen, I love you guys so much. Um, it bothers me a little bit when I see half of you shuffle out as quick as you can during communion. Please be respectful of this. If you don't wanna take communion, that's fine. Um, but if you're not taking it just so you can get to lunch quicker, I'd encourage you to take that 10 minutes and take communion, okay? It's the most important thing you'll do today. So let me pray for you, all right? Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you so much. God, I love you and, and thank you for this church. God, I pray blessings over all of us, Lord. Even if we are producing evidence of our faith, God, Lord, always let us be alert and sharp and aware, Father, of how we're living personally and how we are touching people around us, God. Lord, during this time of year, um, our focus can easily get detracted. I pray, God, that our focus is always about you, Lord, that we remember what this time of year is, is, is really about. God, protect us, keep us safe. Keep your hand on us until we meet again, Lord. We love you and we thank you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself.